You know, have you ever been in a position where you've just been caught and you can't do anything about it? You know, I did it. For me, it was in my freshman year. Uh, we were in the locker room after school uh, doing weightlifting with the football team. And this particular day, a bunch of the older boys on the team decided to make some poor choices. And see, at lunchtime, they all gathered the oranges and they stuffed them and they hid them and they brought them to the locker room. And then before you know it, we were having a competition of dodgeball with oranges in the locker room. And man, oranges were flying all over the place. You heard the loud pops on the lockers. And I'm sitting there as a freshman like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And I thought, wow, this is exciting. So I, an orange just missed me and hit the locker behind me. And I grabbed it and I was begin to launch it. And I saw my sight and it was going to be the best throw ever. And just as I was right in the throw motion, I saw in the corner of my eye, there he was. Our head coach heard all the noise. And of course, when does he walk in the locker room? Right in this motion. And I just see, no. And all of a sudden I hear, Balbach in my office now. He didn't see anybody else. And all the upperclassmen on the team then surrounded me and gave me a pat on the back. And they said, keep your head down. You got this, Bill. It was like the pep talk. You're, you're going in for all of us. You know, you take it, man. You can do this. And I remember walking into that office. I looked down. And this guy, this guy was a big guy. He, was, he played in the NFL and he was built. And I'm like, I was scared to death of him. And I walked in there, and I just looked at him, and he goes, Balbach, what were you doing? And I used the excuse that we all tend to excuse. Well, everybody else was doing it. <laughs> it took me a while to actually own up to the fact that, you know what? I threw the orange. And a lot of us struggle with that, too. You know what? Whatever it is for you, you threw the orange. Didn't you? So often I think we struggle with owning up with our wrongdoing or on a different uh, side of things. Maybe we do own up with it, but some of you right now, you're sitting in the cesspool of guilt. You're just overwhelmed with guilt so much that you struggle with getting through each day of your life. And see, here's the battle. I think we all live in, in our journey of faith. It's that battle of conviction and guilt. What is the difference and what do they mean and how do they go hand in hand with each other? You see, conviction is that revelation that I did something wrong. I threw that orange. I need to make a better choice moving forward. I can't do that again. I have to own up. You see, conviction leads to change. Yet so many of us don't live with conviction. We live in the cesspool of guilt. Guilt is an emotional feeling that occurs when we realize the crime, when we realize the wrongdoing, when we realize the evil that was committed to. But, but the problem is we just kind of live in guilt. And we just live in that. And guilt has the ability to not walk us, to, to, I'm sorry, guilt has the ability to walk us towards conviction, but we don't often walk towards conviction. We just live in guilt. You know, to kind of highlight this in a geographical sense, if you've ever been to Israel, there's a body of water known as the Dead Sea. And it truly is a fascinating environmental piece of geography. And if you've ever been there, it's truly awesome because you can float in the Dead Sea. 
And it, it's a fabulous experience. But the real, reality of the Dead Sea is this. It has all the river water washing into it, but there's no outsource of the sea. So all that happens in the Dead Sea is that it just builds up the salt concentration so much so that there's so much concentration of salt in this, everything in it dies. You see, salt is a good thing, but too much of salt destroys life. And the same is true with guilt. Guilt is a good thing. Too much of guilt, living within guilt when there's no outsource of it, kills life. And I, I'm fearful that too many of us are living our life in the Dead Sea spiritually or emotionally, in the cesspool of guilt where we don't know how to get forward, how to move forward. And here we are, we just feel like we're dying. We're dying because we're overwhelmed with guilt. We haven't moved towards conviction, towards life change. You see, guilt can be an absolutely healthy thing when it leads to conviction. But dwelling in it, it destroys us. It destroys us. This is because living with guilt condemns. But living with conviction guides. So where are you at today? Are you living in guilt or are you living in conviction? It's two different journeys, two different outcomes. Or some of you, maybe in a place that Bill talked about at the communion time, you're living in a place of denial. You're living in a place where I don't do anything wrong. I'm, I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. Or what we tend to do when we live in denial is, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. So why get on my case? You know, I'm not doing those horrible things. We're, you're in one of those three camps. You're either living with conviction and life change. You're living in guilt and you're just overwhelmed emotionally and spiritually. Or you're denying it and you just think, what, there's nothing wrong with me. Which camp are you in? You need to be honest with which camp you're in because you can't move forward unless you identify and are honest with it. Because oftentimes we either are living in guilt or we're living in denial and we just don't own up to it. And then we become the Dead Sea emotionally and spiritually. You know, last week we ended, we talked about this verse in the story we talked about last week, John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a beautiful verse, but we stop short of what follows up after that verse, which is just as important or sometimes even more important than what that verse says because you can't understand John 3, 16 without John 3, 17 and 18. Check this out. John 3, 17 and 18 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Do you see that? Jesus came not to condemn, but to what? Save. He did not come to put us in the dead sea of guilt. He came to convict us towards life change, to experience the fullness of who he is. Jesus' ambition 
was to guide us on the path of righteousness. That's what he desires. That's why he came. That's why he walked this world. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose from the grave. He did that so that we have the opportunity to move beyond guilt to conviction to experience righteousness. Righteousness is just a big Bible fancy word. You know what it means? It means right before God. That's what it means. And so when, when the Bible says that he is guiding us towards righteousness, what he's trying to do is guide us into a relationship where we are right before God in who we are and what we choose to do. In all the umbrella of Bill and whatever, whoever you are, in, in your life, am I right before God? I'm not always going to make the right choice, but when I don't make the right choice, do I turn around and then make the next right choice? That's repentance. That is striving to be a person who's being right before God. Yet here we are. Here we are in our day and age, in our cultural environment, living in the mess of what is the internal battle that I think we all have within ourselves, and that is the battle of guilt and conviction. Guilt and conviction. We all wrestle with it. Once we move on from denial that I messed up, I threw the orange, and we move into guilt, then there we are, we live in that world. And what do, we, what do we do when we live in that world? Of the battle of our heart of guilt versus conviction. You know, today's Bible, Jesus encounter that we're looking at in John chapter 8 is, is a story about a woman who was caught in adultery. It is a story about a woman who was battling this very reality of guilt versus conviction. How do I move forward from the reality that I threw the orange? I did this. I am the one who's wrong. The Pharisees brought this woman who they caught uh, committing this act of adultery to Jesus in this very public setting of the courtyard. It wasn't just the Pharisees and Jesus. There was a crowd of people and they brought this woman in all of her shame she was completely broken and bare, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And there they just brought her in that public setting to Jesus. You see, their focus was not to love her, not to restore her. Their focus was to condemn her, to shame her. That was their purpose. Because they were not on a quest for truth. They were not on a quest for restoration. They were using this woman to blackmail Jesus. That was their ambition. John chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, we pick up the story. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Can I just be clear? Let's be honest with the story. This woman was guilty. There is absolutely no way to deny that truth and that reality. She sinned. She was wrong. She broke the law. And in all her guilt and shame, the Pharisees made this woman a spectacle. They made her stand before Jesus in the crowd, and they put her in her place of shame using her shame as an opportunity for their own gain. Guys, my, our world is messed up. 
We live in a messed up world. I think we can all agree with that, can't we? And in the messed up world that we live in, all too often, our shame is used for other people's gain. And sometimes we're guilty of that too, using other people's shame for our own personal gain. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. You know, we live in a world where people want to put down other people so they can feel better about themselves, so they can get ahead in life, so they can look, become more popular, whatever it may be. And we're all guilty of that. Every one of us has blood on our hands of shaming other people for our own personal gain, just like the Pharisees. And on the flip side, we too are ones who have been hurt and beaten down and shamed because of somebody else. Because someone else highlighted the fact that Bill threw that orange. And I'm going to beat him down because of it. And that's what the, the world we live in. We're all messed up from this. And too many of us right now in this moment are living in shame, overwhelmed with guilt. You find yourself every day living in your own emotional and spiritual dead sea. And there you sit. And you don't know how to move forward because you have too much shame in your life. You know, it's funny because oftentimes we try to mask our shame because we don't know how to deal with it. We mask it by shaming other people. Like I said before, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as whacked out as that person I see on TV. I don't make as bad choices as that. And so we kind of compare ourselves and we say, well, since I'm not as bad as them, then our conclusion is, well, then I'm not bad. And we try to mask our shame and our guilt, trying to make us feel better by what? Shaming others. And we're all in the same dead sea of emotionally and spiritually trying to figure out how do I move on from guilt to conviction? What does this mean for me? And, you know, I read this story and I see this woman that's just standing there in all of her shame and all of her guilt. She is completely broken and she has the crowd all pointing at her, all having their own thoughts of her. And there the Pharisees are trying to knock her down. And there she's wondering, what is this man, Jesus, going to do? What is he going to say? And as I read the story, and as I read the Pharisees trying to shame her for their own personal gain, I can't help but overlook the one fact that you can't see in the story. They have to read between the lines, and that is, where is the guy? It takes two to get that job done. Where's the guy? You know what? The Pharisees didn't need him. That's the bottom line. They needed the woman to try to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. And that's what we see in the world all the time, in the world. The world doesn't care about right or wrong. It cares about how can I use this situation to move myself ahead. And here's the hard reality. 
We live in a world where everyone lies. Everyone is willing to shame somebody else for their own personal agenda. Here's the trap of the world that we all get, that we all get up, uh, fouled up in, that we all fall short in, that everyone's guilty of. And the trap of the world is this, that everyone is focused on what's in it for me. And that's the problem. As we live in the dead sea of our own emotional and spiritual mess, trying to figure out how do I move on from guilt to conviction, because I don't know how to take those steps, I figure if I can shame other people to get myself ahead to feel better about myself, you know, it's all about what moves me ahead. And then before you know it, we just live in a world where we constantly point fingers at each other, shame each other, and no one moves beyond the guilt to conviction. Everyone has their own personal agenda. Everyone has their own motives, and so did the Pharisees. Their motives were, Jesus is getting in our way. We don't like him, and we're going to do everything we can to get rid of him. And I don't care who we wipe out along the way. And we tend to have those attitudes too, and people have those attitudes with us. And rather than pursuing righteousness, being right before God we find ourselves running towards selfish ambitions. In doing so, we all have a role to play in shaming other people while we also live in our own shame. Because, because of this, so often our view of God gets distorted. We get a messed up view of who God is and who God is to us. And the Pharisees had no doubt they were using this woman for their own motives. In John 8, 6, it says they were using this question to as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. That's Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Everybody gets so focused on what was Jesus writing? I don't know. But I don't know if that's really the point. The point was the environment that they're in. And I just wonder what Jesus was contemplating in that moment. Because the Pharisees were trying to trap him. And he knew that. And he knew right here in front of this whole crowd was this broken woman in all of her shame. And then in that moment, he did something miraculous and spectacular. But you see, the Pharisees, they were trying to trap Jesus because they knew Jesus, we got you. Because there's only one or two ways you can answer this. At least that's what they thought. You can answer this, hey, you know what? Don't stone her. Because they were banking on the fact, well, this man's all about love. He's all about grace. And so because, since he's all about love and he's all about grace, then, then he's not going to condemn her. And so by doing that, they're thinking they're banking on that fact. And they're saying, okay, it's going to be good. So since he's not going to condemn her, he's going to become... No one's going to trust him anymore because he's going to become like a lawless guy that doesn't care about the law of Moses. And so we got him. Or they're thinking, you know what? If he jumps up there and says, stone her. She's wrong. we got to follow the law of Moses. Guess what? The public opinion of what they were doing was not all in favor of that. And so Jesus would lose his public approval if he would stand up and say, stone her. I mean, here we are in front of the whole crowd. Everybody's watching. And the Pharisees think, we got him. He can only answer this one of two ways. And there Jesus is, writing in the sand. 
And the Bible says they just continued to hurl questions. And I can just see the moment being intensified. Do you ever be in like the public setting where someone's debating and someone's arguing and the crowd, the mob's getting louder and the person accusing just doesn't shut up and they're just constantly barraging you with questions and, and firing things at you and you can't even get a chance to think? Well, that's this moment. The Bible says they just kept throwing questions at him while Jesus is writing in the sand. And it's a moment where I don't even know how he could think because the, the crowd's getting more restless. But there he is just writing. And then he looks up. And he says this, verse 7. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up. And he said to them, let any one of you who has, is without sin be the first to throw the stone. Boom. Jesus nailed it. He cut right to the heart of the matter. You want to shame and condemn for your own purpose, but you're overlooking this one really important piece of information. You're just as guilty as her. See, all of us, from the beginning of time till now, ever since sin entered the world, every person that walked the face of this earth has fallen in the trap of comparing our sin to others. I'm not as bad as that guy. And we make certain sins this horrific and horrible and awful thing in our minds. Why? Because we're living in the dead pool of guilt. We don't know how to deal with it. So in order to make myself feel better, I'm going to shame them. That's what they were doing. And Jesus cut right to the heart. Hey, guess what? You're all just as guilty. You're all just as sinful. You're all just as messed up. And what you need is me. That was his message right there in that moment. See, the world focuses on condemnation and shame and guilt but there Jesus re revealed that he's focused on restoration. He's focused on conviction that leads to forgiveness and life change. My friends, while the world condemns, while the world shames, Jesus is the one who convicts and forgives and restores. That's his heart. That's his passion. That is his desire. His desire and his focus is to put us on the path towards righteousness, to be right before God, right in who we are and right for God. Righteousness is where we find forgiveness. Righteousness is where we find healing. And after Jesus said those words, uh, he said, whoever throws the first stone, you are, whoever is without sin to throw the first stone, the crowd all left. And that was just Jesus and this woman. This is one of the most powerful moments in Scripture. Because there, Jesus answered the mob. And they realized, man, we're all just as guilty. And I don't know what to say about that. I'm just living in my dead pool of shame. And they all walked off. And there he was, just him and this woman. This woman who was full of shame. I can just imagine the scene as they walked off. Her head's down. She's so embarrassed. She is completely bare physically, emotionally, and spiritually before the Son of God. She's probably got tears just flowing down her mind, her, her face. She's just overwhelmed with all the guilt, not knowing what the next moment's going to hold. 
And as they left, Jesus straightened up, which means he stood up. And I can see he just probably got eyeball to eyeball. There's something powerful when you just lock eyes with somebody. And in that moment, this woman locked eyes with the Son of God, the creator of everything that is. And Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no, sir. And then Jesus declared, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. My friends, Jesus is the man of grace. He's the man of grace. And in this moment, he acknowledged her sin. He acknowledged her guilt. He did not dismiss it. Being a man of love and grace does not dismiss guilt and sin. He addressed it. And he addressed the Pharisees and the world's motives. He addressed the motives of the world to condemn and shame each other, to hide our own shame and guilt. And then he revealed love and grace. You see, love and grace is not the absence of truth. Love and grace are built on the foundation of truth. And acknowledging sin is not condemnation. That's the lie of the world, to try to live in the shame and guilt so we can make ourselves feel better. Our distorted view of things, because we live in this world, we think that, that acknowledging sin is condemnation and shaming others. But that's not true. You see, condemnation occurs. Hear me out, my friends. Condemnation occurs when truth is delivered without love and grace. That's condemnation. But truth, wrapped in love and grace, leads to conviction, leads to life change, leads to restoration, to healing, leads to righteousness. This is repentance. That is the definition of repentance. You see, when you throw the orange, so to speak, you got to move on from denial. And then when you're in guilt, what do you do with guilt? You see, sometimes because we live in guilt, we just keep making the bad choices over and over again. And then we just build the foundation of our own life built on the poor choices we just keep making upon ourselves. And with that comes the consequences of that, internally and relationally. And that's the lives so many of us live, and we don't know how to break free from that. But as long as you live in your own dead pool, uh, de a dead sea of shame and guilt, it's just going to destroy you because too much of a good thing destroys life. You got to move to conviction. That's repentance. You see, repentance is making the next right choice. It's when I'm broken down, when I realize I threw that orange, then I got to figure out, man, I messed up. I own it. You see, that's the path to, to repentance is first acknowledging it. I messed up. Acknowledging the guilt. I'm broken because I messed up. I'm not sad because I got caught. Those are two different things. I'm sad because I threw that orange and I shouldn't have. That was wrong. And then it's making the next right choice. What am I going to do to not make that choice again? 
How am I going to make a better decision next time so I'm not caught doing that same thing? See, Jesus said when he said, no one, I don't condemn you either more and as well. You know, I'm giving you my grace is what he was basically saying there. And then he said some very powerful words. Now go and leave your life of sin. You see, oftentimes when the world says, well, Jesus is just all about love and grace, they miss the foundational words that he says to every person after he frees them from sin. Go and sin no more. He's calling them to a life of repentance. He's calling them to a higher standard. He's saying, okay, make the next right choice. And when we live in repentance, it opens up the doors to so much healing and restoration. You see, true repentance bears fruit. It bears fruit. Everything God created was good, and he intended it to bear fruit. But so often when we live in the dead sea of our own shame and guilt, it destroys life all around us. And the problem with sin is that it cuts off our ability to have uh, spiritual blessings in our life and in our relationships. But we need to live a life of repentance that bears fruit. John the Baptist said this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. When you live a life of repentance, you move on to a life of conviction. Your life changes and you bear fruit. What type of fruit is that? It's the fruit of internal healing that I can't even explain it. That God will begin to work in your life. It's the fruit of stronger and better relationships in your life. Why? Because you're no longer living for yourself. You're living beyond yourself. And before you know it, all the relationships around you begin to get even better and better and better. Because when we're we're selfish in relationships, we destroy the relationships. But when we live beyond ourselves in relationships, we build them up. That's living a life of repentance That's bearing fruit in repentance. See, repentance is living a life of generosity, living a life beyond myself. So what's your next step? Where are you at? We're all at some stage in this journey of moving on from guilt to conviction. Some of you may be sitting there and you're you're in denial. I don't do anything wrong, Bill. I mean, what are you saying that my choices are bad? Why are you saying I'm... what I've done is a sin. And you're just living in spiritual denial. And one day that's going to catch up with you. It just is. The Bible says our sin finds us out. One day it will catch up with you, whether you believe it or not. You got to own up to the fact that I'm wrong. I messed up. I'm just as guilty as that guy. You know, I'm just as messed up. And then we get to guilt. Guilt is a good thing if it moves us towards conviction, but if all we do is live in guilt and dwell in guilt, eventually it's going to destroy us. It's going to destroy you. And I think some of you right now in this moment, whether you're in-house or online, you know exactly what I'm talking about because emotionally and spiritually you just feel so dead inside. Why? Because you live in the dead sea of your own sin, of your own guilt, of your own shame. You need Jesus. You need to make the next right choice and see that Jesus does not condemn you anymore. He is a man of grace, but his grace leads towards a life of conviction. That conviction is making the next right choice on the path of righteousness. I want to live my life that I am right before God in all that I do. And because of that, I experience all that he has. 
Where are you at? Some of you may need to talk to somebody today. Some of you may need someone just to pray with you. If that's you, make sure you stop by Engage Impact. It's in the back of the, of the booth, of the auditorium. Or if you're online, reach out to our host right now so that we can help you in that journey. Identifying where am I at in this spiritual journey. I don't want to live in shame and guilt. I want that freeing experience. I need to take that next step with Jesus. I want to experience him more. I need to make the next right choice. God is moving. You know, last week, we had two people who came to Impact and were baptized last week who chose to make their identity in Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I mean, God is moving. And I believe with all my heart, God's moving in somebody else's life right now. Right now, the Spirit's working. Don't deny him. Don't shut him up. Hear him speak to you. And if you need to make a next step in your spiritual journey, whether it's I need to repent and make the next right choice, whatever that is, I need to be baptized to find my true identity in Jesus and not myself for the world, or wherever you're at, if you need to make a next step in your spiritual journey, either write on your card, next step, or go back to the Engage Impact or talk to your online host, and we would love to help you take that next step, whatever it is, to experience all of God's goodness in your life, just like that woman on that day. She walked away no longer in shame, but she walked away free. She walked away convicted towards life change. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much. You are a good God. And Father God, right now I just pray for each person in this room and each person online. Lord, just may we experience more of you. Father God, may we know what that means in our life. Lord, too many of us are living in shame and guilt and we're, we're just, are spiritually, emotionally, we're just dying. But Lord God, like that woman standing before Jesus, may we seek you. May we experience your grace. And may you move us towards conviction, towards repentance, towards the path of being right before you. And may we bear the fruit of that journey, both in our hearts, emotionally and spiritually, but also in relationally with those around us. And Lord, may you be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen.